So while you were doing the communion thought, Barry, I, a story had come back to my mind of uh, years ago when I used to work at summer camp in New Brunswick, um, and, and just about how uh, sometimes we can't always celebrate the Lord's Supper with um, the most the symbols that most represent what it originally was. Sometimes we have to work with what we have, and so um, at Bayview Christian Camp in New Brunswick. Uh, they, they used to have a, at the high school camp a service on Sunday, so it would go through the weekend, and on the Sunday, people from the local churches would come out for the service, and on the Sunday morning, they realized that they didn't actually have any juice for the communion service, but everyone was already coming in and getting ready for the service, so uh, I just remember getting up to take the communion, because there was a lot of people, so we just walked around, and uh, when I turned around, all the cups were full of bright blue or, or Kool-Aid, <laughs> and I just wasn't expecting it, so I burst out laughing in the middle of communion, which was, <laughs> kind of killed the mood, I guess, but um, yeah, sometimes we have to work with what we have, but it's what the, the symbols represent that uh, is the most important uh, thing, for sure. So C.S. Lewis um, is a... Is a a writer that I'm a big fan of. Uh, and in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world we live in were those who thought the most of the next world. It has only been since Christians have largely ceased to think of the next world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Now, I think that's a very fitting quote uh, where, for where we're at in Philippians and what we're going to be studying this week, uh, week number eight. So last week, uh, we started chapter three, this discourse of Paul, um, this warning of the church not to fall for the lies that were being told by this group called the Judaizers, that they needed to follow all these rules to be saved, and they needed to be circumcised to be saved by Jesus. And Paul warned them, don't fall for that garbage. Because knowing Jesus is worth so much more than all those things that we used to put our trust in, that we used to believe would save us. Jesus is more than our doubts, more than our efforts to be holy, and he's more than everything else that life has to offer. So this week, I want to ask you all, what are you pursuing? What are you working towards in life? What controls your time, your money, your ambitions? What examples are you modeling your life after? So this week is where everything that we've studied so far in Philippians becomes personal. Instead of about the corporate church life, it, it, it more focuses on yourself individually. What is your goal in life? Are you focused on the things of this world to save you or to make you happy? Are you focused on getting to a certain goal in life? Maybe paying off some big debt that you've been worried about or getting that promotion you've been working towards for years or a raise or a bonus. Or maybe it's getting to the finish line, getting to retirement so that you can finally have all that time to do all the things that you've wanted to do for all these years. Last week we saw what Paul was pursuing in life. Being made fully like Jesus and all the hope of perfection and resurrection that came with that. That was his ultimate goal in life. Because Paul knew that the things of this life don't matter. 
The temporary pleasure they give you pales in comparison to what Jesus is offering you. You may remember last week, um, he called the things of this world uh, garbage. And I, I kind of said that isn't actually what it says. Um, the actual literal translation is, is feces. Or, well, Barry said last week after church that it's okay for me to say crap in church. So that would be, <laughs> Barry said it's okay, so I'm okay. <laughs> that would be the most literal translation of this. That is what Paul is saying. Compared, it's crude, but compared to everything that life has to offer in this world, everything else compared to Jesus is just crap. And, and that really gives you a picture of how important and valuable knowing Jesus is and following him and pursuing him. Paul knew that what was to come in the next world was so much better than anything we could experience here on earth. He knew that the best pleasures of this life, the things that we think can save us, they're only the faintest shadow of what is to come. He knew that, and he knew that the world to come is the one that we are truly citizens of, not of this world. So he pursued that goal with his life. His example is one for us to follow, because just as it was true for Paul in the first century, it is just as much true for us today. Every Christian should live in pursuit of Christ-likeness, because we are citizens of heaven. So our passage today is Philippians 3, verses 15 to 21, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version this week. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and this is talking about what we studied last week. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, so um, if you've been around, you've listened to my sermons for the past few months, you know how I kind of do this. Um, first, we're going to go through this all verse by verse, and then we'll kind of get to some application at the end. So uh, let's start right at the beginning, that very first phrase. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. So again, like I said, this is talking about last week, what we studied. Uh, the fact that all these things that people used to put their faith, their hope, their trust in, they're garbage now, compared to what Jesus has to offer you. So this is the view they should take. But what is clear from this sentence is that not everybody agreed with Paul's view on the race to perfection. Not everyone agreed with what he said about the Judaizers. So there's a Greek verb in this sentence, phronomen, and it actually indicates that this was more than just a small issue 
Uh, there was, this was more than just a minor intellectual difference between two positions. There were two very strongly opinionated camps on this issue as to whether you had to become a Jew to be saved by Jesus. It was a completely different outlook on the situation at hand that affected the conduct of some of those people that Paul was writing to. So they believed differently and they were living that out. So there's a big issue here that Paul's addressing. And that Greek word he uses for maturity, so all of us who are mature, is very specifically referring to spiritual maturity. So what Paul is really saying is, if you have been brought to a spiritual maturity in Jesus, you should share this view with me about salvation. Now for the rest of the audience who disagree with them, he says the following. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So if you disagree with him, it will be made clear to you in time through his spirit. And we call this conviction. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts you when you are wrong. But in the meantime, until it has been made clear to them, live up to what you have already attained. And that phrase, let us live up to, uh, the Greek word for that, it carries the sense of a collective discipline, of everyone walking in the same row or by the same measure, almost like soldiers. So he says, take the view I've just given on salvation. Your works won't save you anymore. Jesus saves you. This stuff's not worth anything to you anymore. Everything you used to pursue in life, everything you used to put your faith in, it's all meaningless compared to knowing Jesus. Now, if you're, spiritual mature, if you're spiritually mature enough, you'll agree with him on this. And if not, that's okay. Because Jesus will make it clear to you as you walk with him and mature in him. But, and this is that last part, until that time, until it's made clear to you, we all move forward together as one body. Together we live up to the salvation we've received in him, even when we don't agree. The next bit of that passage, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So to be clear, this isn't a lack of humility on Paul's part. He's not saying, I'm this great person, you should follow my example. That's not the point of it. Although just as a side note, it should be the goal of all of us, uh, whether you're a preacher or a church leader of some sort, or just a Christian in any capacity or position, it should be our goal to live a life that others could follow as an example, to pursue Jesus and to pursue Christ-likeness with such devotion and dedication that we are a natural example to those around us. Now, what's going on here, though, Paul was trying to become as much like Jesus as it was humanly possible to be in this life forgetting what was behind him and straining for what was ahead. And of course, that's only possible through the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying here is follow his example of setting aside the things of this world and pursuing a life that looks like Jesus as much as is possible. The Greek word for follow my example, which is actually just one word in this passage, is literally translated as joint imitator. And that is the key to this whole passage. So it's, it's not about Paul saying that he's this great person you should follow. 
He's literally saying, join me in imitating Jesus. And it's not a vague ethical idea. He's actually making a command here. He's saying, I'm trying to imitate Jesus. Follow my example as I imitate Jesus. And so he's commanding them to do this. He's not saying, I'm an amazing person. He's saying, I'm trying. You need to try too. Just like Paul, they too must learn to renounce all man-made righteousness and place themselves under the righteousness of the cross, which, of course, we know from Romans calls us to die to sin and to be born into new life in fellowship with God. And, of course, as I said a couple seconds ago, this is only possible through the Holy Spirit. He is the one who transforms you to be like Jesus. Verses 18 to 19, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So, the thing that sticks out to me in this passage, as intense as everything is, the fact that Paul says he says this to them with tears. So what's really happening when you remember that this is the Judaizers that he's talking about in this passage is that he loves his opponents. He used to be a Pharisee, and the Israelites were his family. It hurts him immensely to see the people he loves living as enemies of Jesus. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of last week's passage. You'll remember that Paul said, beware of the dogs. And we kind of talked about the imagery around dogs in the first century. You see, there's many people who it would not be good for the Philippians to imitate. The truth was that there were those who did not honor Jesus with their lives, even in the church. And Paul is warning them against following the example of those people. They are enemies of the cross because they are preaching adherence to the law as the means of salvation, which, of course, nullifies the necessity of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as the only means of salvation, if you believe that. Because of this, because they were putting their hope in works to save them instead of Jesus, it says that their destiny is destruction. That's the reason. Then it says a few other descriptors about these people. It says their God is their stomach, which it's possibly a reference to the food laws that they kept to be clean, uh, which was a distinct trait of Judaism, of course. Uh, so they were worshiping their cleanliness as holiness. It had become an idol. Now, of course, in biblical imagery, the stomach also does resemble larger moral and spiritual issues of personal values, self-control, self-indulgence, and then the state of one's soul as well. So there's plenty of application of this for them and for us today. And then it says their glory is in their shame, which is probably a reference to circumcision. They were taking pride in something that they should be ashamed of, mutilating their bodies. That's the word that Paul uses in the start of this chapter. Their mind is on earthly things. And that phrase, that descriptor to me, is the most important one for our application today. Because this whole passage revolves around the Judaizers versus the Christians. Earthly things versus heavenly things. Pursuing material goals in life 
and earthly goals versus pursuing Jesus and sanctification, being made like Jesus. Their attention was directed to pleasure, to honor, and their positions as God's special people. Um, and how they would have seen it is uh, not being, um, you know, whole, like not the way that we see as being God's chosen people, but of being better than everyone else. That was kind of their perspective. They were the special people. The other people were dirty and we don't want anything to do with them. They're kind of gross. So, um, but they took pride in that. They took pride in being God's special people. But this is what they were pursuing. And their chief anxiety is that they might secure them. So sure, okay, Gentiles can come to Jesus, but they have to become Jewish first. They have to become part of God's special people. That's what was happening in the first century with these Judaizers. But the phrase, the descriptor is, their mind is on earthly things. And the fact that this is mentioned as one of the chief characteristics of what an enemy of the cross looks like is terrifying to me. And if you don't find it scary too, you should. Because how many of us at some point in our life have pursued things in this life, in this world, things that we wanted to make us happier or comfortable or to make us feel like we've achieved something? How many of us have at some point in life lived in pursuit of worldly things? And not just at some point. How many people can you think of don't say it out loud, (laughs) but um, examples even outside of the church of people who have lived only to acquire wealth, honor, or to enjoy the pleasures of life. Their mind is on earthly things, and I find that to be a very scary verse, personally. Verses 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So, you you know I kind of go deep into my studies and get on these big sidetracks of all this cool stuff, but to understand this passage, this bit here, you really do need to understand an important piece of context which is that Philippi was a Roman colony. By being a citizen of Philippi, you were automatically a citizen of Rome. And as a result, you shared all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen, even though most of the Philippians had never been to Rome in their life. And they took huge pride in being Roman citizens. Um, You may remember the first week I talked about Lydia, um, and in Acts, she's the first Christian to be converted in Philippi. But she made a fortune selling purple cloth, which was, of course, the color of imperial Rome. Because everyone in Philippi wanted to be seen wearing the colors of Rome, kind of like how people today might put a flag in their yard uh, to show their patriotism. There's nothing wrong with that, but you kind of see how proud they were of the fact that they were Roman citizens. So Paul was appealing to a concept that they were familiar with. They knew what it meant to be a citizen of a city you'd never actually been to. Here on earth they are resident aliens who dwell in Philippi, but their citizenship is somewhere else. In a city in which the emperor, or they called him the savior, lives. And this is something, I won't go into too much depth, but... It's very clear that Paul chooses the name Savior specifically for Jesus. 
Because in the first century, they didn't actually call Jesus the Savior. Because that was what they called the emperor. And they didn't want to associate these two things with each other or equate them. It was only until, it was only about the second or third century that they started calling Jesus the Savior widespread. So the fact that Paul chooses this term that people use to refer to the emperor is very specific and interesting. The comparison is that as Christians, they live here on earth, but they are actually citizens of heaven, which they have not yet been to. And our Savior, Jesus, comes from there. And that Savior, our Savior, will transform our bodies into heavenly bodies like his. And that is through the power that was given to him because of his sacrifice and humility, you might remember back from Philippians chapter 2. And this is the end goal, the completion of the sanctification process. So Paul's view of the resurrection here is that it involves the body, but one distinct in nature from the body we live in today. Uh, the body that Jesus was given will be the same as the bodies we will be given. Of course, we, we don't know what that means or looks like, and we'll only know when we get one. Um, but we do know from 1 Corinthians 15 that this is called a spiritual body by Paul. And we don't know what that means either, but um, it's definitely different in nature from the body we have now. So he says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown in, is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So the, the object or goal of the passage we studied today, all this stuff in Philippians 3, is that in all things we should be pursuing being like Jesus. We try to resemble him in moral character here in this world, and in anticipation of being like him in the new world. And when we finally do resemble him in all things, at that point, both his plan for us and the wishes of our souls will be fulfilled. So the message of this passage was clear for the church in Philippi. Everyone needed to learn to set aside the earthly things they used to pursue, the things that they once put their hope in, and instead unite as a church in pursuit of Christ-likeness, because now they're citizens of heaven. And someday, Jesus is coming back to claim his people and finish the work he started. If they don't agree about this, if they don't agree how this process works, that's fine, but they should still pursue it in unity with the church. And as they are convicted and transformed, God will make it clear to them along the way. That's what Paul is telling the church in Philippi. So how should we apply this to us today? Now, we may not be Judaizers, but we are all pursuing something. Where is your time and energy, your money, your desires? Where is your heart? We know that we're not supposed to pursue the things of this world, so what should pursuing Jesus look like? First of all, we should live in pursuit of transformation. So for the Philippians, Paul called them to think like he did on worldly things, but he also said, if they don't agree, God will make it clear to them in time, because that's how the Holy Spirit works. He convicts and he transforms. 
I know I've said the word sanctification a lot through this series. Sanctification is the fancy word for the process of God making you holy, of making you more and more like Jesus. Now, if you are in Jesus, this process is already at work in you. It has already begun. But the thing about sanctification is you actually have to show up. You have to allow him to work in you. I was at a a conference yesterday, and one of the speakers said about sanctification that uh, if you've ever water skied, which I sure have, and I don't intend to try, um, he said that if you try and pull yourself up, you're going to face plant in the water. That your only job, like, you can't make the boat do the stuff it's supposed to do. You can't drive the boat. Your only job is to hold on to the thing and let it pull you up. You can't do any of the work, but you have to reach out and grab it. Likewise, the Holy Spirit transforms you, but you have to show up. You have to let him. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And of course, the key words there are, be transformed. It's a command But it's not saying transform yourself. It's saying you must let yourself be transformed. If we do not allow him to transform us, we will never grow. We will not become more Christ-like. But we are supposed to live in pursuit of transformation, both individually and as a church. Ephesians 4, 11-15. This is a passage you've heard before, I'm sure, about the different roles and spiritual giftings in the church, but I want you to kind of hear the bit after it. It says, So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the important part here. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And this part here, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. So we are to live in pursuit of transformation. Second, we should live in pursuit of substantiation. And that is just a fancy word that means the act of validating, of finding or proving the truth of something. In today's passage, Paul said, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So as Christians, we should be living lives that prove and validate the power of God to change lives. We should be living proof to others of the power of the Holy Spirit to transform. We should be living examples not of what it means to live in pursuit of yourself, but what it means to live in pursuit of Him. Matthew 5, 14-16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, our lives should be examples to those around us of what it means to be transformed by God, to be changed. Paul called us to follow his example, not because he was some amazing person in his own eyes, but because he was already living in pursuit of Jesus. It was not out of arrogance that he said this. He was just calling us to follow the example that he was following. <clears throat> Titus 2.7 says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. So we should live in pursuit of substantiation. Our lives should serve as living proof of the power of God to change lives. Third and finally, we should live in pursuit of resurrection. Resurrection is the promised prize at the end of the race. We, we know that there's a resurrection because Jesus was resurrected. And when you actually study the evidence for the resurrection, it is actually, it'll blow you away how much there is both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. We know there's resurrection. He is our proof and he is our hope. And then we have hope as well for our resurrection. Paul says in our passage today that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So the thing to know about this whole pursuing thing and this um, sanctification thing is resurrection is not a goal uh, that we earn. Uh, and that's important to know because I keep saying that resurrection is the final part of the sanctification process. It's not like you have to finish all these steps in the sanctification process or you don't get this thing. Uh, God already paid for it for you. Jesus paid for it on the cross. But we're still pursuing it. When we are resurrected, we are given a body like Jesus has. We are finally made to be holy and completely like him. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, the first Adam, or the first, yeah, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, and that's referring to Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that came the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As the earthly man was, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And you'll remember that passage said, we are citizens of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. This image is of Jesus that we are resurrected in. And through our sanctification, it is what we are pursuing. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we should live in pursuit of resurrection, the final result of the sanctification process. So to conclude, I'll ask you the same question I began with. What are you pursuing?
There are so many distractions in the world around us, so many things to, to grab our heart, to distract us, for us to chase and pursue like shiny objects. So many things that promise happiness, but that never deliver. But once we are saved, once we are in Jesus, we have to let go of them. We, we have to let go of these things that, that just frankly don't matter anymore, that are, are crap, because they are just empty shells of what Jesus is offering. Things that cannot compare to what you have in Jesus. We should live in pursuit of transformation so that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is for us, which is good, pleasing, and perfect to follow. We should live in pursuit of substantiation. Our lives should be such strong examples of transformation that they prove and validate the power of the Holy Spirit to others to change lives. And finally, we should live in pursuit of resurrection, the promised prize at the end of the race. Not because we have to earn it. He's already paid the price, but we should pursue it because as broken, sinful, and bent people, it should be our deepest desire to be restored and made fully new, fully like Jesus. We should live in pursuit of Christ-likeness because we are citizens of heaven. And as we leave here today, I'll ask you that question for the third time. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing Jesus, or are you pursuing something else? My prayer for us as a church as we leave here today is that whatever distracts us in this crazy world, whatever grabs at our hearts that gets between us and Jesus, that we would join together in pursuing Jesus because he is the only thing that is worth pursuing. Father God, I thank you primarily for your son and what you offered for us. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your holiness and your goodness. I thank you that your plans are so much better than ours. God, we know and recognize that we are a sinful people who are easily distracted like a, a dog chases a squirrel. And I just ask that you would help us and guide us in our lives to stay focused on the prize which is ahead. That you would just help us to stay focused and, and, and oriented towards the goal that you've given us so that we can be made like you and that we can be lights to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.